At 27, I was naive. That's what he was saying. You're naive. You imagine that all these leaders are good, and you're imagining that all those other leaders that write all the nasty stuff are bad, and you're only hanging out with the good leaders because you're so discerning. But the reality is human beings are a frustrating mix of good or bad, and they're a frustrating mix of help and hinder, and that frustrating mix of good or bad makes people frustrating to interact with because eventually everybody disappoints you. Everybody. Not just leaders. Everybody is wildly disappointing. That's the nature of the human race in Romans 3. And the Lord goes, I'm not relating to them on the basis of good or bad. I'm relating to them on the basis of my blood and my love for them. Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you have noticed, our society has exploded with a very different standard of relating to one another. Now, not only do we cast you out of society for an indiscretion, now we go back to junior high to find indiscretions and use that as a grounds to cast you out of society. The merciless nature of society, the spirit of accusation has exploded. It's exploded. Now again, the Lord has an answer. The beautiful church is going to be a refuge to the ostracized and the rejected of society, those that society canceled, the church is going to become a haven, a home, because the church filled with the love of Jesus is, the love of Jesus isn't just kindness, it's meekness and mercy. Meekness, I'm going to withhold my opinion and not decide who you are based on the last three things you did. Mercy. Even the last three things you did, even if they were to me, I'm still not going to let that define who we are. That's what we do when someone hurts us, when someone wounds us, when someone offends us, when someone in our culture, in Western culture now, when someone says the wrong thing the wrong way, when somebody violates one of the new cultural norms, when someone violates one of the new cultural rules, we immediately freeze that person in amber and determine this is who they are. Who they are is what they said that's wrong. Who they are is how they viewed me. Who they are is what they did to me. Did you see what they did? What they did is who they are. That's not the gospel. That's anti-gospel. Because Jesus doesn't look at the last three things that you did and determine this is who you are, Jesus looks at the last three things that you did and says, I know you're more than this. I know you're much more than this. And I, the great intercessor, live to fight in love and tenderness for the fullness of who you are, refusing to define you by the last three things you did. That's the gospel. Turn to Song of Solomon chapter 5. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Are you with me? Song of Solomon, chapter 5. So, Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 16. If you're unfamiliar with the journey, I'm not going to tell you the whole journey, but she's at the point of the journey where she's overcome her own sin and compromise on multiple occasions. She's made the declaration, this is what I want my life to be about. I want my life 
to be about being drawn by you and running after you in love. That's what I want my life to be about. If you draw me, if you love me, I'll spend the rest of my life responding to your love and running after you with everything I've got. I'll give everything I've got to responding to your love that draws me. It's better than anything I've ever experienced. Of course, if we know the story, we know in chapter 1, she fails the next verse. That's her life declaration. This is what my life is going to be. Next verse, I already failed. He's like, I love you. I Just so you know, I'm not looking at you by yesterday's failure. I look at you and I think, I love your choices. I love your emotions. I love so much about how you love me. But didn't you see what I just did? Yes, but that's not all that I see. I see the full story of your life, and I'm so moved by how you love me. She goes, wow, I want to just experience this my whole life. And then, boom, she fails again. She's like, let's go minister to the church. See, that's an underrated element of the Shulamite's journey. In chapter 1, it's her own failure, but it's failure connected to mistreatment by her brothers. She's mistreated by her family. She's mistreated by the church right in chapter 1. And chapter 2, the immediate test is, come on, let's get back on your feet. I'm going to love you, not so that we can sit under a shade tree the rest of your life. I'm loving you so that we can go conquer mountains together. I'm loving you so that we can go love the church together. And of course, if you know the story, she says, no. I'm not interested in that right now. I don't trust myself with the church right now. I don't trust how I'm going to be treated. I don't trust myself when they don't treat me right. I don't, it's not safe for me to go deal with the church right now. That's the, that's the language of the next generation, right? That's the language. I don't feel safe right now. I don't, I, you know, I just, this is really traumatic. This is really triggering to me. This is really difficult. We're using therapeutic language to justify an anti-gospel way with one another. We're using therapeutic language to justify a violation of the gospel. The Song of Solomon just calls it fear. Yeah, that's fear. That's to be overcome, not coddled. That's to be lovingly disciplined, not encouraged. Again, if you know the story, she's lovingly disciplined. Like the Lord goes, I love you too much to let you be stuck in this fear that's crippling you from your destiny with the church. I love you too much to leave you here. I just refuse. I won't. And so it's the loving discipline of the Lord to get her out of that fear, not the social conscience of the West looking to coddle that fear. Justify it. So then she comes to 4.16. She's just so overwhelmed with how beautifully and perfectly Jesus has loved her. She prays the prayer. She goes, I can't make myself love you like I want to. I can't love you the way that you deserve. I can't love you according to how you're worth and how you should be loved. To go where I want to go in loving you, I'm going to need help. Therefore, I open my life to you. Whatever you want to do, bring the north winds of difficulty, bring the south winds of refreshing, do whatever it takes, but Lord, take me to another level of loving you that I can't produce within myself without your help. That's my prayer. What a prayer. I think it's one of the most anointed, powerful, beautiful prayers in the whole Bible. Again, if you know the story, if you know the story, you know what happens next. The Lord withdraws His presence, not in discipline, but now she's going through what St. John of the Cross wrote about as the dark night of the soul, this moment of testing related to her love, but it's not 
necessarily testing just for her sake. We know as the story unfolds, it's testing to put her love on display for her friends. Because what happens next is, when the Lord withdraws, she immediately, without fear, she goes, I'm going after him. I said, draw me away and I'll run. I can't, I I don't know where his presence is, but I'm going to run. And of course, his presence, the withdrawing of his presence in chapter 2 and chapter 4 or 5, it's not spirit-filled, charismatic presence that's being written about here. It's the idea of the light of his countenance. It's the idea of the face of God. It's the idea of the presence of God bringing blessing and protection. When, we, when you say, shine the light of your countenance, you're asking for that presence of the Lord that protects you from foreign invasions, from destruction, that brings blessing and favor on your house. That favor has seemingly lifted. Now, the question is, when the favor lifts, when the leader doesn't respond the way that he should, when the favor lifts, when the shepherd mistreats, when the favor lifts, the question is, what are we in this for? What are we in this for? Am I really in this for love? Am I in this for what I just prayed? Am I in this to go as far as grace will take me in loving Jesus? Am I in this with an unoffended heart that refuses to pause to feel sorry for myself because I've got a destination called the depths of his burning heart and I don't want to be refused? That's the test. And the way the test plays out is twofold. Number one, Her shepherds, her spiritual leaders strike her. They mistreat her. They misunderstand her. They reject her. Number two, and this is the bigger test, the much bigger test. Her friends come around her. They do what friends do. We saw what they did. We saw what happened. We just need you to know we're on your team. We're with you. We get it. That was wrong. What they did, that was so wrong. That's what, I mean, that's what's happening right now. And the next generation isn't only being tested by leadership that mistreats. Let's be clear. The Song of Solomon, the narrative, doesn't shy away from the fact that leaders can be foolish. Leaders can be wicked. Leaders can be hurtful. Leaders can do stupid things. Leaders can do harmful things. Leaders can really miss it in a way that really wounds. I believe that's part of what's happening to the next generation. They are being mishandled like many of you were by bad, insecure leaders. That's a thing. I don't know if you've noticed, but leaders can be wildly insecure. But is that all they are? Is that what the Lord says they are? How does the Lord talk about them? But now the test is, how will she talk about them? When... Like a generation right now, a generation, somebody leaves the church, their friends come behind and go, good move. Good move. I saw with that church, what they're teaching, it's so unloving, it's so hateful. Good move. That's what's happening. The daughters of Jerusalem are gathering around a generation and cheering on their abandonment of the church. The spirit of accusation is becoming a spirit of abandonment. I'm going to... I'm going to... Give a little aside, little parentheses. Do you got grace for us? Quick parentheses. Quick parentheses. Because I'm going to make it our fault. So, 
centuries ago around these parts, not specifically this town, but I'm talking about Europe. Centuries ago, a new iteration of end times teaching was introduced, very softly, because the Reformation, if you didn't know this, the Reformation was not keen on end times teaching. It wasn't a big thing. Martin Luther, my soul can't acquiesce to the book of Revelation. Calvin didn't, never wrote a commentary on it. End times teaching wasn't their thing. But where they went, if you've ever read John Calvin's commentary on Zechariah, for example, where they went was replacement theology. In other words, they, it really brought them comfort in light of who they considered to be the Antichrist, the Roman Catholic Pope. It really brought them comfort to make the Roman Catholic Pope the Antichrist, which when you make the Roman Catholic, when you make your persecutor the Antichrist, you make yourself the hero of the story. Just so we're clear, our problem begins right there. When somebody wounds you, if in your next response you're the hero of the story, you're already off course because you're flirting with entitlement and self-righteousness. So the Pope is the Antichrist, they're the heroes. Of course they find themselves in an end-time narrative by which the Antichrist is raging against them and they're the faithful remnant that resists that idea, we're the faithful ones, the Pope is the Antichrist, we're the faithful remnant, that idea then animates their replacement theology because what is one of the key tenets here? Israel was unfaithful. We are spiritual Israel amongst the faithful. We're the faithful. Not all Israel is Israel. They weren't Israel, we are. And why are you not them? Easy, we're faithful. So just think about that dichotomy. Think about that taking root into the Christian psyche towards the end of the Middle Ages. Think about that idea taking root, that there's a faithful remnant and an unfaithful remnant, and the unfaithful remnant theologically is discarded by God. Some theologians go so far, I won't tell you who they are because... I'm not going to name names, and they're godly men. But some theologians go so far as to see Romans 5, the scroll that the Father hands the Son, they see it as the divorce decree with Israel. Justified divorce, why? Theologically, because of prophets like Ezekiel that call Israel playing the harlot, and adultery justifies divorce. So the unfaithfulness justifies divorce, discarding, dismissing. The faithfulness, now I'm the recipient of the promise. Fast forward a couple centuries, and now you have the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine where the faithful now are within the church, and the unfaithful are left within the church. Now you're not discarding a whole nation, a whole people. Now you're discarding people within the church. The faithful are taken, the unfaithful are left. The best we can do is gather as our faithful few and forget about the rest. There is no future for the church. There's only a future for the faithful. Think about that. That is so anti-gospel at its core. How could, a, how could I forget you, Israel? Can a mother forget her child? It's unthinkable that God would discard Israel. It's unthinkable that God would discard the broken, the sinful, the foolish, the immature within the church. 
It's unthinkable in the gospel that we love and the lamb that we adore. It's unthinkable in his heart to discard and dismiss. And yet we find ourselves confronted by a culture that is exploding in merciless dismissal. What's our answer? When we ourselves have flirted with that same spirit, when we ourselves have drank of that same well, to what degree is our heart, our emotions, and our speech polluted with accusation, even passive, just dismissal, writing off? Seeing those leaders as not having a future worth buying into or contending for. You pray for the nations, do you pray for them? Those leaders that hurt you, do you pray for them? And do you pray for them like Jesus prays for them? Or do you pray for them with her begrudging, hope that works out for them? So how does the Shulamite respond to this twofold test? The leaders strike her, the friends come around her, they're like, yeah, you're awesome. The Shulamite, think about this. This is why I love her. The Shulamite looks at her friends and in essence goes, what are you talking about? They go, the leaders, they mistreated you. Let's talk about it. She goes, talk about what now? Have you seen my beloved? Can you imagine being mistreated by a leader? Can you imagine being rejected by a leader? Can you imagine being wounded by a leader and your friends come to you to comfort you and talk about what just happened and you look at them like they're crazy and you go, why do you want to talk about that? Have you seen my beloved? I'm aching for him. She's so captured by Jesus. She's so captured by the beauty of Jesus. She has no time or space to talk about what those leaders did. She wants to talk about Jesus. And they go, they ask, they go, who is your beloved that you love him like this? They're a little provoked. They're a little provoked. Who is he? Who is he? And she goes, oh, he is white. He is ruddy. He is chief amongst 10,000. What does she say about Jesus in these excellent passages? She begins to talk about the perfection of of his leadership. In other words, she doesn't just talk about his beauty, she talks about his beauty as it relates to how he answered her prayer to help her love him more through pain. She's answering what the leaders did by talking about Jesus and how he led. In other words, she's going, it's part of the leadership of Jesus. He's brought me into a context where he's producing love in me. He sees my destiny. He sees my future. His head is filled with wisdom. No one loves or leads me like he does. I love his leadership. They end the conversation by going, no, for real, where is your beloved? We want to find him. I believe there's a threefold provocation coming for the church. I believe the Lord is going to light up different ones on fire for the beauty of Jesus in a way that's going to provoke the church to pursue Jesus with a passion we've never seen before. It's not just the anointing, the power, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit blanketing everybody and everybody wakes up to love. I believe that it's going to be a process that some are going to awaken and it's going to provoke. That believers are going to say, when I run into you, when I run into the way you love Jesus, I don't even feel like I'm saved. I need to go find Jesus for real. 
The ch- before the church provokes Israel, the church is going to provoke the church. The Lord is going to infect the church with an obsession with his beauty that's going to provoke the saved to go beyond saved into love like we've never seen before. And that kind of love is going to be a blazing witness to the lost in a Matthew 24 context when Jesus said, love will grow cold. Betrayal, hatred will abound. In a context of mistrust, hatred, and betrayal, a blazing hot, loyal church who refuses to betray, who refuses to grow cold, who refuses to reject, who refuses to dismiss, who refuses to write off, the lost are going to come into our homes and steal our stuff, and we're going to give them more stuff. We're going to refuse to be offended. We're going to refuse to be wounded. We're going to refuse to reject, to write off, to dismiss, to lessen, to remove the dignity of the broken, of the foolish, of the wicked, of the sinner. We're going to refuse to reject them, and we're going to give our lives to see the ones that would wound us for our kindness. We're going to give our lives to see them saved. That's what the love of God is going to produce. And then it's the final threshold. The Lord's going to target that just fire hose of love towards Israel. He goes, okay, you've passed test one. You've passed test two. On to the final exam, Israel. Now you're ready to love Israel in all of her unlovableness. We cannot romanticize Israel. At the end of the age, we need to submit to the loving chastisement of God in moments like this. Somebody sang, refiner's fire, we want it. The refiner's fire is the refining of the spirit of accusation against those that have wounded us and a refusal to submit to the spirit of the age and its narrative about the people around us. It's a refusal to quit on people and a zeal to love them like Jesus does, to think about them like Jesus does, to talk about them like Jesus does, to represent his heart to our enemies around us that wound us. And then... And only then can we actually effectively disciple the next generation into the fullness of their destiny. Amen. Let's stand. I want to I leave you. Thank you for listening to me. For real. I want to leave you with a difficult question to find somebody in the room that you love. I want you to ask a question to the Lord. Lord, is there residue in me? of accusation and unforgiveness? Is there residue in me? Even of passive dismissal, it it might seem small to us, but the Lord goes, it's big to me. I want to cleanse you. I want to heal you. I want to restore you. I want to empower you to love your enemies like you never have before. I want to encourage you, and however you guys want to lead, but to find somebody in the room and go, hey, this leader, I just haven't really admitted this but I think there's still some stuff there. And Would you pray for me? It's one of those things where you don't want to take on with bravado and you want to take it on with humility and help. Lord, help me. I've had blind spots. I've had areas of residue. I've harbored this. I've harbored an attitude. Because again, I don't gather there's anybody in this room that's like super bitter and super unforgiving. This is such a tender crowd, for real. But I would guess there's unperceived blind spots and attitudes towards pastors and leaders, and the Lord's putting His finger on it and going, I have more for you. I love you too much to leave that there. And you have too much yet for the next generation 
for me to ignore it. Amen? Amen. Bless you all.